Hello, everybody. My name is Ray. Welcome to the Evangelical Dark Web. Tonight, we will be discussing some NGMI evangelicalism. That is code uh, not going to make it is what that means. That's what the kids mean when they say NGMI. So we got a lot of examples of that to talk about tonight. And a few of them we've written articles about over at Evangelical Dark Web. A few of them we have not covered yet. So we're going to dive into it. And you'll notice that the thumbnail for this live stream is Eric Metaxas, who has a documentary that we're going to be discussing the trailer for, which is pretty, you know, eerily reminiscent of some other documentaries we've seen before. But I think there's some key differences in how uh, Eric Metaxas is trying to approach the various issues surrounding evangelicalism. So we are live on youtube twitch if anyone's on there twitter and rumble this time we are live on rumble so ngmi is not gonna make it it means that you are not going to survive the times essentially uh just to answer uh the bishop of railways uh question you're familiar with the term right uh no i'm not familiar with the term okay but so there's not gonna make it then there's like we're so back as in we're we're going to make it or I mean, I've heard of we're so back. Yeah, it's kind of like the opposite of that. And, uh, you know, it's what the kids are saying these days. So that's just kind of what we're going to talk about tonight is, you know, there's a lot of things out there going around. I, I do believe we do have some counter examples of we're so back, but uh, we got to wade through the not going to make it first, if that makes any sense. So I do want you all to smash the like button uh, and want to let you know you can support Evangelical Dark Web at evangelicaldarkweb.org slash join. So how are you doing? All is well. That's good to hear. Uh, Ready to dive deep into I guess, NGMI, the new term. That's a new term for you? Uh, a little bit. Okay. So... What's funny is like everyone was talking about the whole AT&T thing crashing today, which is kind of interesting because my internet went out last night, like late last night, my internet went out and little unbeknownst to me that this was part of a national phenomenon, but I'm like, okay, so uh, Xfinity decides to crap out on me just as I'm about to set an article to publish at a certain time. So I had to like use my hotspot on my phone, which was not out. But yeah, strange how, you know, everything was fixed by the morning, but I mean, I was asleep at a normal hour, so I guess I didn't notice. Oh, well, and then I'm Ev logging. Evangelical Dark Web is a late night operation for all you guys uh, unfamiliar with that. And, so, you know, logging in, it was a perfectly normal morning. So, so uh, smash the like button. We're going to get started. And I think the first thing that I want to tease uh, there, there's a few articles over at Evangelical Dark Web that I think we want to talk about tonight. And maybe let's talk about the Gospel Coalition first. And this article is a nice little taster for some of the more main course of tonight, which will be the Eric Metaxas and the Carol Swain. I've written an article about Carol Swain. Uh, I, I, I'm not very familiar with who that is. I thought she was related to MLK. I, I thought that was the uh, conservative niece of MLK that we hear about on the right, but apparently that's not who that is. Uh, that's someone else. 
But here is this article that I wrote on the Gospel Coalition. It's kind of short uh, because it's if I can find a tab. Here we go. I you're able to see my screen. Yep. So this is an article that I wrote. It's called The Gospel Coalition's False Moral Equivalency on Partisanship. And this was just an article that I saw to, over at the Gospel Coalition. I'm like, okay, this is another bad article by the Gospel Coalition. And this is the premise of the article is that early Baptists weren't a voting block. And it has to do with the fact that the Baptist in Maine and Massachusetts were split between the two parties in the year 1796. So if you guys are history buffs, you might be familiar with the fact that America uh, had two early political parties uh, after the whole Federalist, Anti-Federalist uh, divide in American politics. We had the Federalist Party, which survived that. And then we had like the Democrat-Republican Party, which was Thomas Jefferson's party as opposed to the Federalist, which was more Alexander Hamilton's party. And these parties formed during the George Washington administration. So there's your brief rundown. And the 17, 1796 and 1800 elections were particularly mudslinging elections, which apparently was unprecedented in American politics at the time. And this whole article is waxing and waning about the... Uh, how the Baptists responded to this issue. So anything really need to be explained in that or have I covered that? I mean, I imagine it's going to be a very modernist and how it approaches the history. It's probably not going to refer to the whole urban rural divide, which would have been more of a political factor. And the- back then, Back then, and even still, I mean, let's, it still let's is be now. real. I mean, John Adams was he a bad president? Absolutely not. Uh, the problem with John Adams is he didn't come from the most powerful state in the United States of America, which was Virginia at that time. Which would George Washington count as Virginia? Yes. So George Washington would count as Virginia. So would literally you know, like John five, Adams. Five would, of the first seven. Yeah. I so then it's Jefferson. Madison, Monroe, all Virginia. They were all the Secretary of State. And then, because uh, Jefferson was Dennis Washington's Qu- Secretary of State, Dennis and then he Quincy. was Adams' Vice President, if I recall, because they used to be the second place person was the Vice President. And then after that, you know, Madison was his Secretary of State, Monroe was Madison's Secretary of State, and they were all from Virginia. So he had like identical resumes in one sense, uh, leading to the presidency, but it was like all Virginia dominated. So if you were to do a tier list of the United States and factor into like the 50 states, put them on a tier list and factor into the presidents that came from each state, Virginia would be pretty high up there on the uh, A or S tier, I would say, for that reason alone. But anyway, this is all about trying to make a modern parallel between politics now and politics of early America. And there are a lot of problems with that. So I I had a lot to say about that. But here's the two paragraphs that I think are most, or actually three paragraphs. And this guy, let me pull up who the author is. He is Obi 
Tyler Todd, not Obi-Wan Kenobi, Obi-Tyler Todd. Uh, he's a seminary professor, I guess, adjunct. So his concluding paragraphs are, a glance at American history reveals that even a decidedly pro-Jefferson denomination like Baptist never fully embraced political parties with open arms, even as the founders themselves were still alive. And even as the idea of self-government was held to be sacred, Baptists were uneasy with the burgeoning partisan divide and politicization of the church. Pastors and presidents, clergy and lay people, men and women, issued the same clarion call to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond, in the bond of peace instead of normalizing factionalism, contentiousness, and mudslinging as acceptable parts of American church life. These Baptists educated their peers in the school of Christ. Two centuries later, even though the political parties have since changed, the bitterness and hostility of partisanship has not. Faced with another season of deep-seated political division in America, Baptists today have yet another opportunity to proclaim peace a peacemaking, cross-carrying gospel. So, y your reaction to that before I get into my reaction. I mean, does he actually cite any examples of Baptists and... Or is in he the, just... Maybe two. we we skip those examples okay. because basically all of this article is pointing to the fact that we need to be like those people today because we're facing the exact same issue. I mean, if we were like those people today, then we would be. I mean, you'd be like paleo conservative, but like, you, I mean, you'd be like hard line. I mean, you'd be saying like you'd be advocating what Yemen does to certain types of people. I mean, that's you Thomas the, Jefferson did, if I recall. Like you would be criminalizing, you know, homosexuality. You'd be, you know, obviously infanticide would be outlawed. You'd be, you'd be even harsher than an abolitionist on, than abolitionist rising. Like you'd be harsher than them. So Theoretically, because again, even the Catholics at this point in time started to retake this issue seriously after a few centuries of not doing, of being a little lax on the issue. So I, I had a lot of issues with this because basically it's just not understanding the times. And uh, I'll just read what I wrote at like, you know, the wee hours of night. Cause I wrote this at like one o'clock in the morning ish. So uh, the differences, the differences between two, the two right wing political parties of Jefferson's day and the liberal and right wing politics now are irreconcilable. And I, I just want to pause right there. Cause Yes, both the Federalist and the Democrat-Republican Party of you know the 1800s were both right-wing parties. In fact, they're more right-wing than either political party that exists today. So just want to be clear about that. We don't have a left-wing in American politics arise until after the Civil War. And I would credit the you know introduction and rise of the income tax movement would be one of the first uh, signs of a rising left wing in American politics. I mean, they literally call it the progressive era for a reason. Yes, it's called the progressive era for a reason. That's when American politics got a left wing. So America went 100 years without a, a left wing in politics. That changed. And that change was for the worse and detriment to our culture and politics as a whole. So we're talking about two right wing parties. And here's why I say, and, and 
Note the second part of that sentence. The liberal and right-wing politics are now irreconcilable. I'm not talking about the Republican Party here. I'm talking about right-wing politics. And then, you know, the Democrats would definitely be in the embodiment of the left-wing party. But the Republicans are not exactly the most right-wing party out there. They're a party that doesn't want to fight. And they just kind of want to conserve 10 years ago. Which is approaching on 2015, by the way. Uh, not exactly a good year for the United States. If, if we want to, like, pace ourselves behind liberalism. So, whereas the American Constitution is a compromised document, thus showcasing how, a share, how shared a general vision of rule was, the differences between Florida and California now are vastly different from Mass Virginia and Massachusetts then. There is a difference between a nation trying to form its identity and a nation in terminal decline. Whereas the differences in 1800 were not sin issues, differences in 2024 are. So, you got any thoughts on that? I mean, yeah, you're looking at the 1800s, you're dealing with issues like industrialization and whether to use federal money to build a, like, I mean, you're pre-railroad, but canals would be one thing because I think the Erie Canal is is one of the pro early projects in America. I think Quincy Adams was big into building, like building up infrastructure and universities and kind of more enlightened, I won't say enlightenment era ideas, but he was very forward thinking in, in what he was trying to do. And obviously, Adams built up the Navy. John Adams built up. John Adams. He's yes. considered the father of the Navy, which is one reason why I'd consider him, you know, not a bad president at all. Uh, the more I look back on the Alien and Sedition Act, the less I care. Because you know how in public school they teach you that this was unconstitutional uh, and, and stuff like that. So it kind I, mean, of I know they tried that John to, Adams wasn't a great president. I mean, they tried to do that with the Chinese Exclusion Act, but they don't realize that it was, you know, preventing Chinese people from being exploited and protecting Americans from having their wages diluted for like a third of the price. Yeah. So it was kind of a win-win, right? <laughs> but yeah. So, I mean, Jefferson would be considered one of my all time presidents just because I think as far as a job goes, you know, he did one of the best it's jobs. Also uh, important to know that there's no limiting factor nowadays to what the federal government can do, except what it has the ability to do or like the actual power it has to implement it. Like in 1800, a state could actually succeed from the U United States. They could succeed from the union if they truly and In fact, Massachusetts was one of the first states to want to bring up the issue of secession because they opposed America's involvement in the war of 1812. And then of course, Lincoln says that, no, you can't secede in. Yeah. Right. It is until the Civil War and where secession becomes illegal, essentially. So, I mean, the fact is Florida and California are now stuck in the same nation. They can't leave. You can maybe do like a soft divorce, soft well, organization, but that's about it at this point. When America was founded, it was the states that made the federal government. Can you honestly say that majority of the states were created? I think it's pretty clear that the federal government created the majority of the states we have now. Well, and yes. Is but... that, you know, completely fair? I mean, Texas would be in the minority. Uh, 
Florida wasn't necessarily created, but again, it was also bought by the federal government. So, uh, so it was already a split geographical region, but as far as like a lot of the states where their borders are determined by the, uh, latitudinal, uh, you know, geography. So that's what defined the borders. And that's why you got a lot of straight borders. I, I mean, who defined those borders? So that, that's just something that we have to deal with. And that just goes to show how much different America is now. And we're in a terminal decline right now. We're not trying to form an identity as a nation, which is why you see a little bit of the growing pains in early America. But we're in decline now. And the politics now is all moral issue after moral issue as we're just it's not just, you know, pol we're not arguing what the highest marginal tax rate is. We're arguing about, you know, does reality exist or not? Is, is a can a man become a woman? We're arguing such stupid issues like that, as opposed to uh, what's the best way to preserve freedom. We're not arguing that. We're not arguing whether a bill of rights would actually protect the freedoms or whether it would encourage the federal government to regulate our freedoms. That's not the argument we're having in 2024. So uh, that that's really all I got to say about that. But this is a latest article I wanted to cover from the Gospel Coalition, and it just shows how they don't know what time it is. So. I'm ready to move on to the uh, next uh, yeah, topic, uh, if you are. That's a good example of, uh, you know, not going to make it evangelicalism right here. So uh, that being said, uh, I'm going to make sure we're live on Rumble because I got to, you know, because we are live on Rumble, by the way. So we're live everywhere. Uh, like I said, so. I want to be able to interact with the chat there as well. So we'll be interacting with chat tonight. Uh, so with that said, let me tee up the next thing, which I have, and that is letter to the American church. And this is a documentary that's by Eric Metaxas. So we're going to cover this next. And then the Carol Swain article that I wrote, uh, sometime on Monday, I think. So this is Eric Metaxas. This is a book that he's written called Letter to the American Church. And it just kind of says, you know, boomer con. Uh, and this is the, uh, and it's a film adaptation of the book that he's doing with this documentary. And TPUSA Faith is involved. And it's streaming on Epic Times. So I'm not actually going to watch it. But this is the premise of the documentary a film adapted by the best-selling book letter to the american church written by eric metaxas the film lays out the parallels between 19 early 1930s Ger nazi germany and other totalitarian regimes with which with what is happening in america today and how the church has been mostly silent in uh, silent facing this evil Eric and several leading conservative voices today explain how cultural Marxism has taken over America, including the church. This film is a wake up call to the church to stand up and speak out against the evil that is manifesting in our country. Uh, our cast gives practical examples of how to take action and turn our country back to freedom, liberty, and ultimately God himself. Uh, well, that's what it says. Now let's look at the, uh, you know, the trailer. 
Uh, you got anything to say on that first or? I mean, it kind of has a lot of boomer premises. You have to get back to the World War II. You got Okay, do, we'll talk about you that. You got to talk about the mustache man. Well, okay, we'll, we'll cover that afterwards. But he, here's the uh, trailer. I'm convinced that the American church has arrived at a significant moment of truth. We are only 75, 80 years removed from three separate regimes that killed 60 to 70 million people intentionally. The parallels with where the American church is now to where the German church stood in the face of the Nazi regime are unavoidable and grim. Churches need to understand really what Marxism is, which is to destroy the church, to destroy the word of God. So if you capture the seminaries, you capture the pastors, you capture the laity, you capture the soul of the world. Christianity is not just about saying Jesus loves you and then going to heaven one day, but that there's a war that's raging. The church is weakening, which is why Marxism is ascendant in America today. This is the hour of the American church. Are you not entertained? That was James Lindsay in there, right? Yes. Uh, Yeah, I know. He looks like he's had some soy. I didn't, other than Charlie Kirk, I wasn't in Metaxas. I wasn't sure who the, I guess that fourth guy was. I, I'm not great with names. Uh, so, uh, Phil, uh, with the $20 super chat, thank you very much. Um, appreciate your support. Uh, you're regular on the live streams as I recall. So let's just switch things up. So that being said, there's a lot of issues with that. And I think one of the issues is we're going to have this documentary about leading the American church back to Christ, back to God. And you have James Lindsay, a Christ hating atheist in the documentary. Yeah. He basically wants to go back to 2015. Yeah. I think that's a fair decade. Or well, year if you're going back to gay marriage, at, gay latest, marriage then you're... at the earliest, he would go back to the mid nineties. Yeah. But if you're including gay marriage in your, and, and supposedly Tucker Carlson also said something about, I just want to go back to 1993. It's like, really? Yeah, I mean, yeah. for, you know, aside from like 1994 being like a very good year for movies, probably one of the best years in cinematic history. What, what was so great about the nineties that, you know, would eventually hold up against the threats we're facing today. Like that, that people's not going to fight today's battles at all. Uh, America at that time was, you know, you're basically talking about, we just came out of the cold war and Bill Clinton just became president. I don't see how that's like the ideal time to go back to when Trump talked about making America great again, you know, you knew there was some time that America was great and we've fallen away from that. But what time period would you face that as? Well, I mean, there's, I mean, there's plenty of things that are emulatable about the 90s. I mean, that's when you have the rise of Pat Buchanan. That's where this whole soul of the nation comes from. 
is that's like his presidential campaign, a lot of his rhetoric. Obviously, I think Trump was very skeptical of NAFTA. So that's kind of so he would be kind of early 90s. So there was some political vitality then. Like you had, I mean, 1993 was also before a crime dropped in the United States. So it was a well, very high crime. That's actually, that's apparently that right. might not be as true just because uh, medical, I, I, I was listening to someone talk about how there's a study that said medical advancements basically decreased the murder rate. It would be much higher because, you know, a guy would be shot. Okay. And, so because we were able to save people who were yes, shot. Yes. Because we're able to murders. actually prevent people from dying, that makes fewer murders. Okay, to, so so that is uh, one thing to consider. So th there's a few issues. So obviously they talk about three regimes in that they talk about uh, or so the three regimes that were showcased. They didn't. I don't think they said them out loud. But Hitler, Stalin, and Mao. Now, I feel like does everything have to go back to Hitler? And I think the answer is no, right? Not everything has to go back to Hitler. Because I actually see our parallels are probably more with uh, the Spanish Civil War. You have a country that's increasingly, and you know, I'm going to come across as loving the Catholics a little bit more here. But the Catholics were brutalized by the communists in Spain. They would basically dig up nuns and defile their you know, corpses and stuff like that. They did some very nasty things, burning churches all this other thing, all, all this other nonsense that they did, the Catholics leading up to that time. It, they were getting very brazen in their acts of defiance towards God and anything even remotely resembling uh, faith in Christianity. They were very hostile to in as a precondition to the Spanish Civil War. And then you have someone like Franco arise and he beat the communist. So why isn't that cited as an example of, you know, why isn't this remembered as something that, or let me rephrase the question. Why isn't this, the Spanish civil war seen as a parallel to our times rather than everything's got to be Hitler? I mean, it's, it's just, I mean, a post post-war consensus is the easy breakdown, but uh, Metaxas is pretty much talking about, Oh, it's about freedom, Liberty, democracy even though i mean if we look at reality of what like majority of church history viewed as the proper form of government they'd either say monarchy or aristocracy and that would be a very Arist aristotelian idea that being ruled by elites is the best form of government instead of democracy and so, but he has this idea that oh democracy is the ideal form of government and totalitarianism is the I guess the ant or authoritarianism is opposed to democracy. And therefore we must oppose authoritarianism because that authoritarians are inherently evil, which is not really true. I mean, King David was an authoritarian government or king. Moses was an authoritarian. Like Yeah, and he was so authoritarian that it's like you're getting pretty deep into was it Exodus before he even decides to delegate authority. So that's how authoritarian Moses was. So everyone would take their petty nonsense to him. So it's kind of interesting because we're pointing out, okay, these were dictatorships. I mean, two of them were very communist. 
uh, Mao and Stalin. Uh, but they, they don't point out that, hey, you know, one dictatorship defeated this and that in order to and there are basically zero examples of generic freedom defeating this. Yeah, I mean, China's still around. I, I guess the the question is, where is their counterexample of uh, their solution working to defeat it, you know, in, in a different power? Since they want to make historical parallels to how these other places succumbed and how the church failed in these in Germany and in Russia and in China. I don't think they'd maybe. Again, China probably China. didn't even have a church. Russia, their Orthodox Church was pretty much killed by the Bolsheviks. Right. And then Stalin establishes a state church with, you know, friendly Orthodox uh, priest. That's kind of how Russian Orthodoxy got rebirthed under Stalin. So he pretty much picked communist loyalist. So that's, you know, now and then you go back to Germany, which, I mean, you know, you got already got 100 years of pietism and. Again, Germany's a lot more complicated because you're not taking into account Bolshevism. And they never front. do. And I, I've watched a lot of World War II documentaries. You know how many of them um, talked about the connection between Bolshevism and the Holocaust? Probably none. One, actually. Hmm. I can think of one. It's on Netflix. It's one of the more recent World War II in color ones. And I'm just kind of stunned watching this. And I'm like, wow. They're actually acknowledging this. And it makes me wonder, because you know how the whole replacement uh, theory thing is, we don't want to replace, you know, we don't want to make America, you know, we don't want to replace white people in the United States, but it's also good if we're replacing white people in the United States. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You know how they kind of yeah. deny that it's happening. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's the paradox. Affirm when it happens, and I feel like it's that's not happening, but it's doing. great that it is. Yeah, and I feel like that's what they were doing with the, you know, the whole Bolshevism in Germany thing in this World War II documentary, uh, and I was just kind of stunned watching him. Like, wow, they're actually admitting this. That uh, you know, they're actually providing like why, you know, the Germans were the way that they were. Like you never see that. It's always treated as a slippery slope of hatred or that the Germans were just uniquely evil during this time or that the Jews were our uniquely oppressed people. It's always framed as like one of those things. 
but it's not any of those things. You got to actually look at history in the context of which things happen. So I just feel like everything's got to go back to World War II. Yeah, I mean, it's a very lazy and it just shows. History. And you know what? The thing about Eric Metaxas is he has sort of a fetish for World War II. Big fan of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which I don't know why. I mean, I pro- I know why he's a big fan of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but I'm not going to pretend like Dietrich Bonhoeffer is the you know biggest hero in the church in the 20th century, like so many believers do. I mean, you my understanding the is he most wasn't inspired by Bonhoeffer. They're all liberals. Why? My is understanding that? was he wasn't orthodox on several key doctrines. Well, let me know what he was exactly orthodox on, and I, I get that you know you could probably level you the same criticisms at c.s lewis but uh and that's fair but diedrich bonhoeffer is known as the hero who tried to kill hitler and that and we're supposed to forget his theology as a result of that so i don't i don't forget his theology um just like mlk should be remembered for his uh your thoughts on charlie kirk being involved I mean, I'm not surprised that because Eric Metaxas and and TPUSA Faith. I mean, I already know that that's a connection, so it's not surprising that that TPUSA Faith is kind of producing this to kind of say that, hey, look, we're doing something, uh, and you know, they're embarking on projects like this. It's not really a surprise at all. Obviously, I don't. I guess this is Charlie Kirk putting on more of his boomer hat for this documentary because obviously he is a lot more. I guess red pilled than he lets on at times. And obviously I think he's more of a noticer than he comes across every single moment. You know, my theory is that Charlie Kirk is someone who could be bullied into being based. If we bully him hard enough, he will be based. I mean, I do think Kirk in general is kind of sold out to a lot of the neocons. Oh, for sure. He started out selling out. Yeah. So I do think he actually has paleoconservative tendencies, but he's kind of a little bit of a sellout. So there's not as he doesn't have as much of a conviction or a foundation to his beliefs. But I do think he I mean, he's a noticer. He knows like he knows the problems he can. That's why he did the whole MLK. Um, that's why he was really against MLK like last month or this past month. And we talked and about him a lot trying to attack. make the uh, uh, the Winston Churchill triangulation between Zionism and Bolshevism. Yes, I think he actually could go further, or but he has to do this sort of meandering, and as kind of like a way to still. He knows where his bread is butter. Yes, he knows where his bread is butter. He's trying to do a lot of weird calculations. Like on Jason Whitlock, he talked about how MLK civil rights was bad, but Billy Graham civil rights was good. So it was very weird. He does a lot of weird statements like that when he should just be like, it was bad. And, you know, just say that, just say that you're, you're a fan of Christopher Codwell's arguments and just go with that. But instead he kind of does a lot of, a lot of, fence sitting a little bit of triangulation trying to be a little bit too clever i guess my question is other than running a political organization what exactly has charlie kirk done meaningfully on this issue other Um, than being a pundit on which issue Uh, 
just what the documentary is about. I mean, not really. I don't think TPUSA Faith. He just has... runs TPUSA, right? That's, yes. That's I, I don't think TPUSA Faith has really lived up to its promise. What? Go into detail on that. I mean, this is their, actually this is their baby as well. It actually is on the surface. It actually could do a lot of good of mobilizing a lot of Christians politically. You can get a lot of big name speakers. But I mean, they kind of I mean, obviously, they're in bed with more of the Calvary Chapel crowd, which already has a pretty strong political apparatus. If you're looking at like Jack Kibbs and a lot of the stuff that he's he's doing on politics and uh, was it McCoy? Um, but so they are very politically active over in Calvary Chapel, but he hasn't necessarily triangulated to where he can bring in more of the J John MacArthur crowd. Maybe he's I don't know if Vody Bachum's done anything with them, but it should be a bigger tent of American Christendom, and it hasn't quite done that. And I think that's one failure of TPUSA faith and not living up to its potential. And I think the reason why it's not living up to its potential is because they platform a lot of grifters. Yeah. And they've kind of shown that they're not really all that serious. Yeah. I mean, about, you know, it, it's one thing to be ecumenical and I get that, but then they're not exactly, you know, they have an atheist speaking at a pastor's conference. Yeah. And that's kind of the problem is they're just looking to do more conference work and not necessarily building up leaders or using churches to ballot harvest or doing now, any of these in, things. In their defense, does anything about this election says let's get active? About 2024 in general or just? Yes. I mean, given that they're based out of, in, out of Arizona, I would think so. I mean, uh, you would think, but, you know, this is the least important election of our lifetimes. <laughs> so that's kind of where I'm at. Uh, but nonetheless... I persist in being involved in local politics. And so let's talk about the James Lindsay being in the uh, documentary. And I think this is just another example of this dude has made his money in conservatism and he hates us still. So how much money does he have to make and you know, before people realize that he is kind of a fraud and he doesn't really have any substance, any meaningful critiques of uh, wokeism, critical race theory, in my opinion, because he wants to preserve everything that led up to it. And then he has no solutions at all. So when you're talking about a documentary that's about solutions and this guy has been on the wall saying, it's a trap. Don't act. Don't do this. It's a trap. Like last year, he was a false prophet for don't be aggressive with the anti-trans rhetoric. You're going to fall for a trap. There's going to be a transvestite George Floyd situation and you're all going to fall for it. That was James Lindsay last year. This year, and then we're treating him as someone who has something serious to say about the solutions facing the church and wokeness. Answer is no, he doesn't have any. Well, even still, this whole we gotta go back to freedom and liberty and justice for all when okay, yeah, but that's what led us here. The idea of having free speech and all that is why you have, you know, parents losing their children to the uh child protective services because of transgender ideology. Now, is that really a free speech issue? No, but it's the result of free speech that people can spout idiot, idiotic ideas that are 
blasphemous and get away with it. Well, but again, our country started off with blasphemy laws and that didn't affect the First Amendment at all. And the First Amendment was written about the, again, this is where I think what you're really attacking here is not the First Amendment so much as the enumeration. Well, I'm more just attacking a libertine idea of free speech. Okay, so... Or free speech absolutism or something. So that's where I'm I'm getting at, this idea that freedom for freedom's sake. And the founding fathers didn't believe in that. They believed in freedom to an end, a meaningful end. And I mean, the end wasn't necessarily, you know, living a Christian life. I mean, I think that's a, a summation of it in a sense, but they would probably use Christian in a generic sort of way if you were to word it like that to a founding father, I, I would say. But it wouldn't be freedom for, you know, degeneracy as you would see in like France. When they say liberté, equité, equalité, or whatever the French. No, it's liberty, for liberty, fraternity, equity, I think was the French revolution slogan. So they would, they believed in freedom for degeneracy. And that's basically what France was, the French revolution was about. And America, at its founding, rejected the French Revolution. We didn't like the French Revolution. Uh, and Thomas Paine died an uncelebrated figure in American history because of his love for the French Revolution. So the founding fathers understood freedom of speech better than we do now. And they didn't understand it as, you know, the freedom in a libertarian sort of way. You know, they viewed rights having responsibilities tied with them. Yeah. And that's that's the problem is what they're going to talk about is, you know, your freedom to own your AR-15 and you know, like tr big trucks, big guns. And like that's that's what freedom is and being able to say things on Twitter when when it's never an absolutist attitude or. But again, that's what they're going to say is that if you restrict free speech, then that's inherently evil. That's inherently anti-God. When in reality, like, you know, blasphemy laws at the beginning of the American founding. But those were also state laws. So I think that's a key distinction. But in the instance of like the Indiana family, I don't think that has anything to do with like, you know, the federal well, government free speech so is, much as free speech is in as a principle is what allows these ideas to flourish. Do you have a bunch of Republicans that don't actually oppose transgenderism? Yeah. And I think that's what that more comes down to. I'm gonna write an article over the weekend about Tommy Tuberville supporting transgenderism. Uh so be on the lookout. You want to subscribe to that evangelical dark web newsletter so you don't miss our content that's coming up. Uh so I put out a community post about that on YouTube. Hopefully we get more subscribers to the email list. I want to pay more for the email list service that I use. And in order for me to do that, I need more subscribers. So I'm, I'm almost at the threshold where I have to pay more for that a month. So let, let's do it. So um, that that's the thing. And I, I want to table the any more like world war ii conversations uh, because about everything resorting to world war ii because we're about to talk about the carol swain article uh and that article is something i wrote a few days ago I i'm gonna pull it up but 
I think this transitions nicely because in terms of not going to make it, the Eric Metaxas documentary is just too boomer. It It's too little too late because what's the comparison to this documentary? It's not, it, it's enemies within the church. That's the comparison to this documentary. Uh, that That's a documentary that came out um 2021 or is it 2020 now it's 2021 so this documentary which i actually have with me uh came out it's a little bit dusty on the cover if you can see that but it came out in 2021 and they did a lot to expose what's really going on in the uh evangelical church and how institutions and people have been corrupted they itemized these are some of the people corrupted these are some of the money organizations yes they actually do a follow, it is a follow the money type of documentary i don't think I, this is going to be a follow the money documentary i i don't think it's going to be that at all uh I, I the job's already been done and so many people have come out with their own version of enemies within the church uh tom askell's founders ministry did that before enemies within the church came out with the by what standard which i guess was all right i mean for a very you know cheap little synodoc it's decent but it also i believe platforms james Lindsay in the beginning and if i were to watch that now i would just be disgusted at it because they did it too it was a stupid idea at the time when there were so many christians speaking out about this that basically were you know mothballed or suppressed by larger figures because they didn't want to be called racist they wanted an atheist to take that slack or whatever reason is probably the actual is there another reason other than what I just said? They didn't oh, want to punch. It's the general punch. Right. Oh, no. Left. John Harris is a Confederate supporter. Can't be associated with anything that's sympathetic to the. Or also, he said mean things yeah. about people at, at various I... seminaries. And that's exactly because he insulted my friend over there. It, yeah. It, it, things like that. So that's kind of what disgusts me about when the the people in the church platform, people like James Lindsay, who is famous because he took screenshots of what these people wrote in their books again, but he doesn't actually want to fix the problem and he doesn't actually believe in everything that is part of the problem is part of the problem. He's still woke on gender. He's still woke on sexuality. And I don't even know how really unwoke he is on race. So uh, we're going to move on to this article by Carol Swain. And I'll probably s switch it back to this view. So Carol Swain's ignorance on church history. This was a fun article to write. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I didn't know who Carol Swain was, but apparently she's a bigger deal in con Christian and conservative media than I thought. Uh, has over 200,000 followers on Twitter. Uh, her website is dedicated to getting her booked on places and speaking gigs. I believe she was a former Vanderbilt uh, University professor of political science. So she's a former libtard that turned conservative. Is that a very good way to become uh, instant political uh, success story in conservative media? Well, she also she checks more boxes than that. A little bit more, but I think that's the biggie, right? I left the left. Or actually, I didn't leave the left. The left left me even better. So 
she wrote an article uh, and it, it's bad theology with an even worse reading of church history. And it's something to behold. And the article is titled My Ignorance of Jews in Church History. And I didn't uh, I didn't want to include the Jews part in the title of the article. So I just kind of kept it at church history because she said that, not me. Uh, just to be clear, she's the one who said that. Uh, Brian Babes points out she's a big deal in conservative world. She's been in a few documentaries. Are these like the Dinesh D'Souza documentaries that I've never seen? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm so good at conser consuming conservative content. And it's not like I don't consume any conservative content. Like I have a subscription to Blaze TV, full disclosure. And that's about it, right? I mean, I, I do read like Not to Be when and a couple other websites but i'm not i don't watch their documentaries i've never seen what is a woman uh and i'm not a daily wire person so no balling with lady ballers i i would watch that movie if it were on a platform but it's not so you know i'm not getting a daily wire subscription uh so that being said, her article is titled My Ignorance of Jews and Church History, which is aptly named, yet conveys the opposite of intention of narrating Swain's journey of learning. And this is a very short article, by the way. I've probably clipped most of the article. Like, it's quoted, block quoted mostly in this uh, thing. So she's going to be fairly represented in her position because I typically have a way of transitioning between quotes by saying what kind of happens in between or what leads up to it. So this is kind of like her opening statement is I'm a Christian Zionist who was ignorant of church history. Stop. Ignorant that is until the recent rise in anti-Semitism on American soil that compelled me to dig it a little deeper into church history and to seek understanding as to why there are so many Jewish atheists in academia some of whom come across as anti-Semitic and anti-Israel. Why? Well, they weren't anti-Israel after October 7th. That much is clear. So, you know what's crazy to me about this part? Is that this is begging a question, right? The, begging, the, the question is, be, or no, sorry, she's asked a question. What she's doing is begging a thesis. And this is, I think, what I wrote is that she's begging a thesis. And the thesis is, why are there so many Jewish atheists in academia? And why are some of them anti-Semitic and anti-Israel? That is the question that she's going to answer, right? Because she even says, why afterwards? You know what the rest of the article doesn't answer? That question. Does she even address that subject? No. Oh. So she just the rest wrote, of the article is completely about something else. It's about us and not about them. So to speak, it's talking about her ignorance on church and church history. It's not talking about what that was. It's not talking about why there are so many anti-Israel and anti-Semitic Jews in academia. Which again, I still think that's she raised that point too. I still think the anti-Semitic Jews is a false premise. Right. Uh, I, I would agree with that. So I, I just find it fascinating. She brings that up and then does not touch it the rest of the article. It's gone. Meep, meep, gone. That's why it's a short article. 
it is short. It is, it's not particularly long at all. So this article includes most of what she wrote. And she doesn't touch that. I would have noted that. So Carol Swain ponders why there are so many atheist Jews in America, yet nothing in the article attempts to answer the, this question, begging for a thesis in a brief column. So she continues, silly me never took the time to really contemplate the well-known fact that the 6 million Jewish deaths under the Holocaust occurred in Christian Europe. I have laid awake wondering how followers of Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, have allowed such evil to take place around them. Why did the majority of Protestant and Catholic churches fail the Jews? Why was it left to Diedrich Bonhoeffer and Martin Neimuller, I, I keep wanting to say Neimuller, uh, to sound the alarms? Why did Martin Luther, St. John Chrysostom, Chrysostom, I always struggle with saying that. I always do. And even St. Augustine failed the Jews. Was it because of the language of Romans 13, 11, which states in the NIV, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established and the, the authorities that exist have been established by God. So she's trying to argue, were they complicit with the Holocaust because of Romans 13, bro? I mean, I could understand that the Martin Luther reference. I'm not sure about Chrysostom or Augustine as far as where they fall into this. Cause I generally, I don't hear them cite it in the same conversations as Martin Luther of the Jews and their lies. Like, I don't, no, uh, St. Augustine's the one I'm surprised. What did he write? <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, I know the other two are kind of famous oh. at, uh, on their subject. And I want to say Justin Martyr is as well. Well, Justin Martyr said that, you know, the church is the true race of Israel. Okay, so there was a connection there. I, I, I don't know who Martin Niemöller is all that well, actually. So, I mean, so she's just doing a lot of name dropping. A lot of name dropping. Over, like, wow, over millennium. That's... I kind of want to give her a slow cap. Like, congratulations, you just learned who St. John Christ Chrysostom is. Congratulations. Uh, because I feel like she didn't know who that was beforehand, but now she's trying to show off her knowledge of uh, her journey of knowledge and church history. So I, I guess I'm kind of bothered that she's trying to like flex here, despite the fact that she's about to blame Christians for the Holocaust in a nation that was extremely secular. But you see what's going on here is that her view of history and this is what Zionism is. It views the Holocaust as the preeminent event in human history rather than one of many tragedies in the 20th century and the Second World War. And on a side note, I don't say this in the article, but it wasn't even the worst tragedy wasn't even, wasn't even the in worst the 20th century at its or time. even the Second at its World War. Or even the Second World War. It wasn't the worst in either time period. So up. Uh, that, that needs to be pointed out. Like one of the worst uh, genocides in history, proportionately speaking, was in Cambodia under Pol Pot, where he killed like 25% of the population. So that's what happened there. 25%. The Holocaust that pales in comparison to 
the atrocities of the Soviet Union and of Maoist China. And, you know, as a Christian, Armenian Holocaust would rank a higher than that. And the Holodomor and, and a lot of other things, right? I mean, Holodomor is commerce. But am I right in my thesis, Does it, in my hot take here, that the Zionist views Holocaust as the preeminent event in human history? I mean, that in 1948. So it's, but those are kind of all connected. Yeah, they're connected. Uh, Thomas uh, brings up abortion, which is absolutely in the 20th century. Yes. 60 million to six. So, yes, absolutely. Uh, and thus, all of church history is viewed through the lens of an event while ignoring the biggest factor that led to the Holocaust, which is Bolshevism, which, you know, we've talked about, you know, a few minutes ago was, you know, why things like the Holocaust happened. So all of history, the church, everything in the church led up to this event is basically where she's about to go. And I'm not kidding because this is the next part. It turns out that the culprit is and was replacement theology. So this feels like a Scooby-Doo moment where she just took off the mask and it's replacement theology. Yeah, I, you would think Michael Brown wrote this article. I, I, he's got to be better than this. There'd be a lot more paragraphs. He's got to be like better than two sentences. There'd be a lot more two sentence paragraphs. This Scooby Doo writing nonsense. He's got to be better than that. Replacement theology argues that the Christian church replaced a special status once held by Jews. According to this, to the theory, the Jews rejected and killed Jesus. And in turn, Jesus rejected the Jews and replaced them with the Christian church. That's a straw man. That's not why Jesus rejected the Jews and replaced them with the church. That's not even a correct reading. Well, that's a she's not even that's a straw man. She's creating a false argument to knock it down. Yeah, I mean, like textbook straw man. But even calling it a theory and not a theology, according to this frame. Yeah, there's a more charitable way that she could have worded that. But you notice that people who call it replacement theology are not charitable in their terminology. Oh, no, inherently they're not because they don't realize that they're using a term that they're uh, using a term of derision. Well, they're using a term of derision that was, I think, popularized in the 80s. So it's it's not even this term isn't even 100 years old as far as its popular usage. Uh, So I actually want to respond to this chat. Where is the where is a source for Bolshevism? some connection to the Holocaust. I'm really curious. I wish I had like a really good source on standby. Oh yeah. I watch a lot of history documentaries. So it kind of all like blends in, but in terms of what the second world war was gearing towards, I, my reading of history is that it was kind of inevitable because Germany and the Soviet union were the two big baddies that were going to fight each other. And then kind of Britain just kind of got in the way. Uh, like, you know, the British didn't have to uh, do that. The Soviets also carved up Poland and stuff, but, you know, with the secret Rubentrop molotov pack. Uh, but 
if you look at the German propaganda and their language regarding communism and the Bolsheviks, it was very clear. And if you look at people like Winston Churchill, also associated Bolshevism with Judaism, the Germans did as well. Everyone, every con the contemporaries of the Russian Revolution viewed Bolshevism as a Jewish movement. So it has to do with that. If you look at their language regarding Bolshevism, just know that they're tying Bolshevism to Judaism. I mean, I might recommend uh, Pete Quinones. He has a lot of streams that are on this subject or surrounding subjects, like uh, anything with like Thomas 777. He does a lot of historical stuff. He's had uh, Michael Raphael Johnson on his uh, program even recently talking about like, I guess the red, I think the red, um revolution he talked about the i mean he did a recent stream so i mean that would just be one channel it's on rumble and i would just that might be a starting place that on just good information on like the early bolsheviks i mean they did a whole series on like the jq and then they actually do a whole series on the spanish civil war as well so a lot of there's a lot to choose from and a lot of different history around that area to watch so we got a straw man definition and just, I don't really, you know, isn't it more called like covenant theology um, would probably be, or fulfillment theology as I see in the chat uh, because it's not that Jesus rejected it. It's that these are the, this is the new covenant. Like the old covenant, I would argue ended in the middle of the old Testament. It ended during the time of Jeremiah. And then after that, if you were to read the Bible chronologically, the references to the old covenant are the old covenant was violated. Not that it's going to be reestablished. It's all looking forward to a new covenant that God is going to establish. So there's this anticipation that there's a new covenant coming because the old covenant has been dead for centuries. It's been, you know, ended for centuries. It ended with the diaspora, but the new covenant's coming. And that's what they're looking forward to. Daniel countdown and, you know, Jeremiah's prophesying. So that, that's my read of the Old Testament uh, in terms of Old Covenant and New Covenant. There's like a period of time where there really isn't a covenant, it, a land covenant at least, because that, that's the covenant that ended. But there's a promise that the, the sun is coming. That covenant continues. So, But usually when people talk about uh, rejecting covenant theology, they're talking about the land covenant not ending. So the idea that, so at, although this theory is fraught with scriptural contradictions. Name one. Uh, she doesn't. It became the dominant view in Western nations for far too long. Fortunately, most Christians have rejected replacement theology and have instead embraced the theory of, the theory of dispensationalism that holds the, an opposite view. So you, you kind of chided her for using the word theory, but at least she uses it evenly, I guess. But first of all, Western Christians, uh, dispensationalism is nowhere in Eastern Christianity. So it's not just Western Christianity that, you know, rejects dispensational theology. It's everywhere but Western Christianity. Oh, she, she, she doesn't large swathes of Western Christianity. Like she doesn't even cite a single example of contradiction. And then she says this was the dominant view. No, it wasn't the dominant view. It was the only view. 
Yes. There was no competing. Yes. And, and she's at, even about to say that too. Like, like the Catholics claim that the Old Testament priesthood is like a forerunner to their priesthood, which is not inaccurate. But incomplete. But that's well, but that might be one reason why they call themselves priests. I'm in the middle of uh, reading Hebrews, and I'm like, why would they call themselves priests? You know, reading Hebrews is like, you know, we're talking about Melchizedek and all that, which is all the more reason to reject dispensationalism, in my view. Uh, When he talks about the order of Melchizedek, the idea that a new people, you know, new law, uh, so to speak, and a new system. So that would be, our, you know, one of our justifications for not continuing the ceremonial law is, yeah, you know, in Hebrews, uh, was it seven? So, with that said, after exemplifying Godwin's law, you know, which is everything goes back to Hitler, Swain blames Christians for the Holocaust occurring in a rapidly secularized nation. She blames the whole of church history for being wrong until John Nelson Derby, uh, Darby came around. And on a side note, she makes the claim that majority of Christians are dispensational premillennial. And while that may be a perception, it's more likely a plurality than the majority. Uh, uh, that's my that's my read on the current breakdown of eschatologies. Uh, I mean, if you include Catholics into the equation, it wouldn't be. So if you're just talking Protestants, it would be a plurality. But if you include Catholics, it would be a distinct minority. Yeah. Uh, our millennialism would be presumably the the largest eschatology if you included Catholics. I mean, I suppose if we went to Oklahoma, you know, it, it might be illegal to be a millennial or a post millennial there. Well, but you know, they would just beavers. <laughs> no, they would actually say a millennial. So you're born between uh, 1985 and 1995. That's what they think when they. A little bit of an Oklahoma joke. That's why I didn't get it. <laughs> uh, they're saying that you're a millennial, like a generation. So on, on that note, she is saying that all of Christianity got it wrong until John Nelson Darby. So here's where she explains that. Dispensationalism grew out of the teachings of John Nelson Darby and the Plymouth Brethren, a movement that started in 1980. 1827 and gradually replaced the anti-Semitism inherent in replacement theory. Yet there remain Christians in America who argue that the Jews of Israel are not the heirs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those who reject Israel are quick to defend Hamas and express sympathy for the Palestinians and a disdain for the Jewish people wherever they reside. So, I mean, does she even know anything about the Plymouth Brethren movement? I'm going to guess the answer is no. It's a very low church tradition, anti-tradition. I mean, like a Brethren movement doesn't necessarily even believe in a pastorate. Do you know how many splits they had? Yes. Because no one was right enough to still be called a brother. I mean, open Brethren, you have closed Brethren. Again, they don't believe in like the pastorate as an office. So, but obviously, like, you know, someone like Darby hated the Pope, but, you know, he kind of made himself his own Pope. 
and a lot of his theology was able to take off in post-Civil War America. He was able to kind of take advantage of like bad times. Now, what she's not take advantage of Charles Finney's influence. Now, she's not going to mention that like political Zionism actually predates John Nelson Darby. Not mm. by that long, right? Uh, it's certainly Napoleonic. Right. Uh, so let's, there remain Christians who argue that the Jews of Israel are not heirs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I, I would, that's not a straw man. I would agree with that because I don't think the mo Jews of modern Israel, she should put, she should have specified modern Israel, but that's the context she's talking about. I don't think they're genetic heirs and I don't think they're spiritual heirs of Abraham. Well, I yeah, think. I mean, this this entire debate is over the meaning of Genesis 12. And those who reject Israel are quick to defend Hamas. That's a little bit. Now, have I ever defended Hamas? I mean, I don't care about Hamas. I don't care what Israel does to Hamas. And I also kind of don't care what Hamas really does to Israel. They're at war. I mean, you do things in war. I, I just don't care. I can't be bothered. That's my thoughts. And I'm not going to be made to care by a media that has an agenda. So my thoughts on that. Uh, it expressed sympathy for the Palestinians and a disdain for the Jewish people wherever they reside. Again, not overly sympathetic. Uh, and disdain. Would you say that about Muslims? What, disdain for the Muslims wherever they reside? Or right. Are you allowed to feel that way about them, or is it just one pagan religion that you can't be suspicious of? And again, I they're they're on the same level, and that's how Christians should view, you know, Islam and Judaism is on, on the same level. That would be consistency, because these are religions that both claim to be worshiping the same God as us, but or the tr one true God, the monotheistic true God, but they reject the sun. So I got a comment on this chat. Ah, mill are whiny losers. Post mill are winning winners. But again, there is such a thing as optimistic ah, mill. I guess the question is, you know, is there a millennial or not? But you can kind of believe almost the same thing. Just a question of, is there a millennial or not? And I guess my concern is I'm not convinced there's actually a millennial because a millennial would mean that there's a separate time of judgment. So there's like the initial Jesus returning. There's a judgment in Jesus returning. And then there's a second judgment afterwards. I, I just kind of don't see there being two different judgment days, which would be required for a millennial for a premillennial view. There would have to be two different judgment days rather than one judgment day. My thoughts on that. Now, if we want to talk rapture and pre-trib rapture, you have two different returns of Christ. So. Uh, so my thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, she's I mean, she's also making a leap because, again, a lot of the people, especially on the right, like the people on the right ne weren't necessarily defending Hamas in the wake of October 7th. They were more or less isolationist in their yeah. posture. Yeah, and like I'm not going to be made to care, and, and again, I don't trust either side to tell me the truth about what's really happening. And we're the ones saying we don't care about you know stuff that happens on Harvard, 
between, you know, leftist uh, liberal students that are Jewish and leftist liberal students that are pro-Palestine. Yeah, I, like, I that's don't. That's not our fight. That's literally the definition of not our fight. I know. This is that episode of South Park where they were arguing over whether you can be born cripple or whether you could become a cripple later in life and still be cripple. And the main characters like we're staying out of this. Like that's that should be our mentality. So. And the best line from that episode is when they're like, were you born a crip? And they're talking to an actual gang member. And we were yeah. born crips. <laughs> and yeah, so th that's my view on that. Stay out of it. Uh, this is a fairly reductionist view of church history as it lauds Darby as a hero that he frankly is not, as he was a very schismatic man. Swain's argument is also predicated on the premise that modern Israel is the heir to Abraham, which she does not cite any scripture to support. I, and then she continues, to that end, I qualify as a Christian Zionist since my love for Israel and the Jewish people grows out of my appreciation for the Judeo-Christian Bible. It is, the, it is my Christian faith that encourages me to love and pray for the Jewish people. We are told in Psalm 122.6 to pray for the peace in Jerusalem. May all who love the city prosper and, or I pray not to prosper, but because Israel is the apple of God's eye. What? And deep down, I, I have always had an affinity for the Jewish people and a secret desire to be a bloodline descendant of Abraham, if I could do so and preserve my Christianity. So I kind of, wait, what? I pray not to prosper, but Israel is the apple of God's eye. Does that make sense to you? I think she's trying to say she's not praying about prosperity per se. It's like she's What's not trying connection? to. May all I think she's just citing. Oh, may all who loves this city prosper. And she's saying that she's not praying for Israel yeah. in order to prosper. I mean, obviously, Psalm, you're taking Psalm 122 way out of context. And the Zechariah uh, scripture could equally be applied to the church. So that's not a con uh, that's yeah, not I don't, a think, it's, I don't think it's equal. <laughs> that's not a dispensational proof text. I I don't think that's, that's something dispensationalists will cite a lot. I mean, she wants to stop being black, or she would trade being black for being Jewish. If she could still be a Christian in the process. Hebrew Israel, Israelite. Movement. Black Hebrew Israelite. Here she comes. Uh, go for it. Slay queen. Yas. Um, as I write these words, I hope that more Christian churches will become historical in their teachings, especially at this moment of great crisis. Israel is our friend in the Middle East, and we must stand with her. To stand tall, we must seek knowledge and grow in our faith and understanding of God's plan for Israel and the world. Which yeah. is what I mean. If you actually, she become, doesn't answer that question. If you actually become historical, then you're definitely not going to be a dispensationalist. You might not even be Baptist either. If you really, <laughs> if you really want to go there. Um, uh, at the end of the day, Carol Swain is a Zionist first. And her theology is built around maintaining her political idolatry. Because that's really what that was. I want to be you, but still also be a little bit of me. Uh, that's kind of what she was doing there. She believes that she 
She believes that she is historical in her Christianity, despite holding fast to a theology that is less than 200 years old. And she's the one that brought up the year here. She's the one who brought up 1827. So. I mean, it's also stemmed. I feel like it stemmed from the framework that there was no church for a thousand years because of Catholicism. And, you know, there was no there were no Christians until the Reformation, because that's kind of a mindset from a lot of anti historical, I guess, Christian Christianity, like uh, independent fund, fundy Baptists are very like there was no church. Catholics are unsaved where they kind of go through a lot of that. So they'll think, OK, there was no church for a long period of time until the Protestant Reformation, which isn't exactly true. And and, and that's kind of where I think like bad polemics against catholicism lead to some really bad theology and i think you know a lot of the modern day amillennialism kind of is a result of that like they'll go hard against catholics and then they'll tolerate to me some sort of pluralism between you know multiple multiple religions can worship the same god you can get to god without getting to the father at least the jews can but the catholics can't even though, you know, they, you know, don't, you know, they claim to be worshiping Jesus and we can get into a debate about Catholicism later, but I just think it's odd that you're so anti-Catholic that you elevate Jews above Catholics in terms of, well, know, I don't know if she's anti-Catholic, but it, I, I'm not saying kind of... I'm talking about, there's a large segment of dispensationalism that is so anti-Catholic and then they do this. So. Uh, let me catch up on. So this is where I conclude the article. Then I'll catch up on chat. This article showcases how Zionism has a low view of Christianity and a dishonest view of church history. Carol Swain is slightly better than John Hagee, who wrote an entire book filled with dishonest historical claims in that she kept it brief. Can't argue that. So uh, let's get to some chat. Uh, well, I'll get back to sharing screen later. Uh, Let's see. Post mill all the way. Anthony is much smarter than Ray. Wow. Okay. I won't turn down a compliment. Hey, we're, we fish for that around here. Uh, one God, yes, but not the same God. I agree with that. Yes. All three worship a different God. That, that would be my take on it. And I think Jews and Muslims... Jews will team up with Muslims against Christianity before they team up with Christianity um, in, in my view. Oh, no, it's not just your view. It's the, I mean, again, there's there, the, oh, yeah, famous, yeah, the, the famous clip of Adam King, a Jew. Uh, I think he's a, either. Orthodox he wanted to or eradicate the Catholics. Or, yeah, he, he would rather Thanos be in a world. Yeah, he'd Muslims. rather Thanos snap Catholics than Muslims. So uh, Muslims are like Mormons. Yes, exact same origin story, except Mormons are in the United States taking advantage of like American national identity, whereas the Muslims took it. Muhammad took advantage of Arab national identity. And, and he kept, at least Muhammad kept his story a lot simpler. I mean, Ishmael instead of Isaac, a little bit of a switcheroo. <laughs> yeah, first, he didn't he, make up as much. Like, at least that's simple. You only had to corrupt, you know, start out with one corruption and then deviate from there. But uh, let's see. God can make children 
of Abraham out of the, the stones. Yep, and, uh, uh, covenant theology proof text. One of like infinite. Uh, one, uh, I guess it contradicts apple of thine eye, right? And then Brian Babes points out Jews have the real scriptures. I wouldn't see them as the same as Muslims. And it's like, but at the end of the day, the Muslims have a less offensively bad Christology than Jews. Because Muslims at least believe Jesus was crucified and maybe even rose, I think. They just don't believe he was the son of God. I mean, but they at least believe he was a prophet. I think a prophet is a step up from, you know, boiling in human excrement. No, I mean, it does go back to the whole Talmud versus Old Testament and what's what is more influential in, I guess, modern Judaism. So, so I think I think there is a distinction there. Uh, what about Catholics and Protestants? I think Doug Wilson is on the side of them being fellow heirs. I, I think it comes down to individual faith. That would be my broader concern, because I'm not going to say that there was a thousand years where no one was saved. And I think there's a difference between a denomination that went apostate and a denomination that always was apostate, which would be the case with Mormons. I wouldn't count any Mormons as Christians, but with Catholics, you know, are we really going to say, you know, people like Thomas Aquinas weren't saved or uh, King Alfred the Great wasn't saved because he was Catholic? Right? That That's kind of a hard sell or I'm thinking of like, who's the, I'm trying to think of like, who was the fate? famous crusader that was like really good it was either Richard baldwin no no first crusade well, was it baldwin goth or godfrey I, i'm not sure which one it was but you know model citizen i mean and again catholics have so much theological disparity it's not there's no monolith uh, that, that's kind of my opinion if someone was born into the catholic tradition i think that's a lot different than if someone left a protestant tradition and went and converted to catholicism I think those are two different uh, things that to evaluate. Like if someone started off Episcopalian and then went to a more theologically sound denomination, that would be a good thing, right? Uh, because they saw that, hey, this denomination has lesbian priests. So even though they were in an apostate denomination, they were still saved and then out of their savedness, you know, left the denomination, but I don't think it's going to happen everywhere. Then in terms of the gospel being preached, the, the Catholic church might be the only people in a certain area doing that at all. So, so I mean, going back to we're so back uh, evangelicalism or we're so back evangelism, but Catholic converts evangelicalism to, are great. Yeah, yeah. The whole appeal to tradition is, what brings a lot of people into Catholicism, same thing with a lot of Eastern Orthodox, because there's an appeal of actual tradition. There's appeal. Let's talk about that for a second. Cause the Eastern Orthodox kind of drive me nuts with that, where every nation except America can get a Eastern Orthodox church. That's, you know, kind of customized for our nation, but America doesn't get that. Like we still, you know, there's no Orthodox church of America that, you know, believes in Calvinism and doesn't lick icons. Can we have that? Eastern Orthodox balls in your court. And then you declare iconoclasm to be a heresy, which is kind of absurd. But, but like, my, it's wrong. It's not heretical. So I, I but don't, a lot of it has to do with, you know, they're not necessarily going into it because they love the theology. They're right. going into it because they like the... You want to outsource your theology. <laughs> 
That is true. That, that's what Catholics do. They outsource their theology. They might not. They don't. They might not outsource their faith, but they outsource their theology. And the Catholic the Church's theology is corrupt. But they outsource that because they want the tradition. And again, if you want to throw the Catholics some good, some love, I mean, they were the, you know, the primary or the the first pro-life uh, movement. They were the primary resistance to abortion post Because it wasn't the Baptist. Yeah. Not until 1980. Uh, the moral majority, or, yeah. Moral majority, majority changed that. Changed that. So, so uh, that being said, how much more is there to discuss? Do we have another article? Uh, may I'm trying to think. There might be that Neil Shenby. Uh, I'm going to look it up. So Neil Shenby basically said that he didn't want. Uh, he was concerned about right wing even or sorry. All right. So Neil Shenby quote. I, are you worried about uh, the radicalization of young white men by the far right? Good. I am too. It's an important step. Uh, in a work in working to de-radicalize them is understanding how CRT has poisoned our racial discourse over the last 10 years. So Neil Shenby is worried, right? Uh, are you worried? I mean, I don't think it's happening enough. I mean, the problem I would say <laughs> is there might, I mean, I might also say there's the problem is there's not enough, there's not enough young white men because technically under, under 30 is not a majority white demographic. So it's, which is why men especially are very difficult to poll or they don't have a whole lot of standout data on like political thought. But women are skewed heavily liberal. So there's a part two to this, or maybe this came first, but you gotta you gotta look at this. So this is Neil Shenby saying, My nine-year-old son did this at a homeschool co-op for President's Day. And he wrote, apparently, this is his son. If I was president, I would allow dictatorship and become dictator based i i mean i really hope this is true is that a julie season room up there uh yes yes that, yes it is. the the comment section is very much feeling this so i i wonder is neil shenby if he considers himself white is I mean, he worried about be, his son let's be honest far yeah. white right right let's, now yeah i mean let's be honest we celebrate lincoln and he did that he became a dictator for president and he did war of northern aggression as it's called it <laughs> is what it's called uh, in certain parts but yeah parts, uh, but... the, the presidents that we remember were the ones that defined the presidency and pretty much expanded the the power of the office you know that would be fdr yeah coolidge is like the one who didn't do that and did a really good job well, only the right him but only the right really credits but him. i'm saying he's pretty forgotten so yeah uh, Neil Shenby's Neil Shenby is not going to make it, but his son might. So, I mean, that is just so based. 
we are at levels of. I mean, this guy. I mean, this guy probably saw like Donald Trump, all the whole the whole Donald Trump become a dictator for a day, and you know everyone on the right's just like, why stop at a day? <laughs> so. breaking this down so that we can so this next clip and i think this is where we're going to end it's like one of the more we're so back clips so that being said uh smash the like button and submit your last calls for questions uh because we're going to talk about kirk cameron uh and this is him on timcast and i didn't even know he was on timcast it's fascinating for me to listen to you guys and thank you for just just um breaking this down so that we can all have a better understanding of this my understanding of uh of, of people who are who are being tolerant and turning the other cheek um is i see so many who are just tolerating evil and that's not loving your neighbor i mean at the end of the day the two great commandments of christianity are to love god with all of your heart mind soul and strength and the second is like it is to love your neighbor as yourself if you tolerate the kinds of things that bring misery to your neighbors and ultimately strip them of their liberties, you're not loving them. And I think that's where you have things like the just war theory. You have things like um, interposition, where the lower magistrates would interpose themselves uh, against the tyrants. Uh, and, and, and that's what we have with the Constitution, is we have limits for government powers so that we don't tolerate tyranny, either from the outside or from the inside. And that is uh, a very essential Christian virtue is to not tolerate that type of thing. Uh, now, if, if you're gonna if you're gonna cuss me out and you're gonna you're gonna steal my my coat, uh, I might um, love you anyway and give you my shirt too. And and in doing that, sometimes people go, their conscience convicts them, and they come back around and go, why why do you do that? Why do you live that way? But you come after my kids, or you start stripping away our liberties, or you you make my my neighbors live in poverty and misery so that you can go live on Epstein Island. Uh, no, I think we shouldn't tolerate that. So that was Kirk Cameron. Uh, your thoughts, initial reaction? Is that some guy who's going to make it? I mean, he's probably more of a la ideological lagger than an ideological leader. I mean, I don't know. But is he going to make it? Because he kind of the finish line. I think he'll be pulled across. Again, he's not leading on ideology or anything in that. Again, and I'm not sure how familiar he was with the doctrine of lesser magistrate prior to like COVID when that became very in vogue. I mean, again, referencing just war theory. It wasn't theory. in vogue enough. I mean, referencing just war theory is a little cringe. But I think he's referencing frameworks that exist to for a Christian to respond with violence. I don't yeah. know. Because he's talking about the misuse of turning the other cheek. And that's what he's talking about. But he's responding to it by saying, by delineating the fact that, you know, if you're coming after me or someone else, no, I'm not going to turn the other cheek because that's a misuse of that passage. So you see him actually pushing back against a misuse of a common scripture. Uh, another misuse is love your neighbor. And this was done ad nauseum by the He Gets Us campaign when it's love your neighbor as yourself. You know, that, that's a pretty important condition to loving your neighbors as yourself. Not even as they want to be loved. So that 
you know, he, he's pushing back against the misuse of scripture, providing a biblical framework for a Christian to uh, defend him or herself. And I, I thought that was good. Now, I don't know if he's looking rough or is he a lot older than I thought he was, but no, maybe it's a movie. Maybe it's for a movie role. I don't know, but he like looks like get off my lawn, but he sounds a little bit younger than that, you know? Whereas like RFK Jr. sounds 30 years older than he actually is and looks like 10 years younger. Uh, so uh, Thomas says that he's kind of aged rough. And I would agree. I would agree. So love that's not lust. Um, it's agape. That sounds like a Italian commercial or a song. And I, I've been thinking about the how we kind of misused. Uh, we mistranslate agape, I feel like but that might be a topic for another day. But I feel like when we say unconditional love, it's kind of meaningless because every love has a condition, right? So oh. it's not like unconditional surrender, I guess became popularized because of world war two, because everything goes back to world war two. Right. So we think like unconditional love because that's the highest form of love, right? Just like surrender is the unconditional surrender is the highest form of surrender. I don't know. But if you look at older Bible translations, they translate like the King they James say says, faith, love and or faith, hope and charity, which is a good way of kind of like framing what type of love agape is really talking about. You know, there you go. KJV, KJV only. AJV only. Um, but anyway, I do have an upcoming book called Winning Not Winsome, Ten Commandments of Spiritual Warfare. I do talk about the uh, misuse of loving your neighbor as yourself. So I, I talk about that and a bunch of other things. I was on the call with the publisher earlier today, so the progress is moving. We're talking cover design. Uh, I don't have that many ideas for cover design, but I'm thinking we have a Jerusalem cross and a Chi row kind of emphasizing two different movements for, uh, or, you know, two different eras of spiritual warfare and, you know, battle readiness in our culture. So those are some thoughts, uh, on the cover design, but that's where we're at. And it's coming this year. It's happening. We are so back. So, uh, you got anything coming up to share? Uh, I got an article discussing Christopher Codwell, Age of Entitlement. That is in the queue and ready to go. All right. So. And I got something coming up on TD Jakes. That'll be nice. So, yeah, so. going to be a nice conversation on the Civil Rights Act and Ronald Reagan. Uh, yeah, that that's good. We're going to have the, the Ronald Reagan conversation. I feel like Reagan was two different presidents, first term and second term. But another conversation for another day. Uh, have a blessed night, and we will catch you on the next one. Next week, we're going to have, I believe it's set, we're having a guest on next week, and we're discussing Christian nationalism, and it'll be good. It'll be a good conversation, and we'll catch you then.